0: Undertrained and overgeared. Some soldiers on the front line have it bad. But lucky for you, if you die, the mega corporation you work for will get you back on your feet and back to work in no time. Just don't lose your head out there, soldier. This week on schedule for launch, join me, Zach Walsh, as I talk with Tony and Dave of 23rd Century Productions about Battlelords of the 23rd Century, 7th edition. Take on the role of soldiers in deep space fighting to protect the galaxy or fund your own dreams. With a long history in this game, there's something out there for everyone. We talk about military themes and making a game compatible with another system. Welcome to Schedule for Launch, a podcast to discover the projects that you may have missed. This week I am very excited to be talking about a really interesting game that's been around for a little bit, but I'm excited to see more of it, and joining me is two of the creators this week, so... Thank you for joining me to talk about Battle Lords of the 23rd Century, Tony and Dave.
1: Thanks for having us on.
0: Thank you for having us. So this is kind of a a really big IP, and I'm excited about, and I say big in a in a loose sense because a lot of people haven't heard about it, even though it's, it's really cool. There's actually some guys down at one of my local game stores who play Battle Lords. So I'm excited to learn a little bit more about it and talk about it.
1: Yeah, uh, Battle Lords has been around, well, 31 years now. Uh, It started in 1990. It was written by a guy named Larry Sims, uh, who was a U.S. Army vet and ran a game store in uh, uh, New York State. And uh, over those 30 years, the amount of material for the game has just grown and grown and grown. It's changed hands three times. We're the third company to helm the Battle Lords brand and uh, we're excited to bring it to uh, to everybody in its newest edition.
0: I'm excited to learn about it too. But before we really dive into what Battle Lords is, can you tell the audience a little bit about yourselves?
1: Sure, my name's Tony Oliveira. Um around here they call me Executor. we've all got call signs. <laughs> um and it's cuz I'm a bit of a taskmaster and my job is to keep everybody on track and and working.
2: My name's David Sirucco. My call sign's CDO. It's OCD, but in the proper alphabetical order, as it should be. Uh, I one of the jobs I have is editing, so I'm the one who says that thing's two pixels off to the left. What do you mean is two pixels off to the left? Zoom in, you'll see it. You can see that? Yes. Couldn't you? When they do those uh, OCD quizzes, I'm like, so when do the hard questions come?
0: Oh, my goodness. <laughs>
2: And every once in a while, people have fun messing with me, <clears throat> Tony, and send me this thing. It's like, oh, look at this beautiful pattern, except there's this one tile that's in the wrong spot. Oh, all I'm this field of nuts. white, and there's one in the black, and the black and the white one are flipped, and you're like, yeah.
1: Yeah. He got to keep his editing skill sharp. <laughs> yes, that's what he says.
0: So you two were just mentioning, actually, briefly, that this is the third time that Battle Lords has kind of changed hands. You're the third people to kind of have this one. And the four of you who work on this game actually wear a lot of hats when it comes to that. But before that even started, how did you all meet and start working on this together?
1: Uh, We had, I
0: picked up Battle
1: Lords in early 90s at Gen Con from Larry, the original author. uh, And loved the game, played it through college. Uh, Dave and I met at college and I introduced him to the game. Uh, and uh, we had all we'd done martial arts together for years and years. And eventually after college, we kept training because we were in the same city. And we yeah. ran into Kurt, who is one of the other people who helps. And Kurt was at uh, the martial arts school where we moved to and we introduced him to it. And he was hooked after that. So that's sort of how <laughs> we all learned about the game.
0: It's certainly an, an interesting thing, too. It's This game is super cool, and there's a lot going on with it, even just from the quick start guides that I've seen. But before we even really dive into mechanics or characters or the story of it, what is Battlelords of the 23rd Century? Dave, I'll let you take that one.
2: Um, I like to say, well, we, we start with the simplistic military sci-fi that's kind of... Uh... As Tony mentioned, it was started by an army veteran, so it really started with a heavy dose of military and science fiction. Mm -hmm. Um, So I like to start by saying uh, there's a lot of genres that, that, that kind of feel very similar. It's a very dark and gritty kind of a universe. It's not a glasses-half-full kind of a universe. It's a, no. We don't have uh, OSHA here. We don't need that. We'll just get another person if they fall off. We don't care about railings. Kind of a universe. Uh, so <laughs> we have things. That I usually say, you know, if you, like you can be in Starship Troopers kind of a mode. Uh, so that okay. feel works for you. Um, if you like Fifth Element, that kind of a feel works for you. You could do yeah. that. Um, if you want to go more like Ocean's Eleven or James Bond but in the future, that could work for you. Or Firefly, mm-hmm. Serenity, um, anything where you're kind of out on the frontier on your own, or Guardians of the Galaxy, where you're just kind of out on the own, on your own out there trying to figure out how to make ends meet. Um, those are all, you know, ways that. Guardians of the Galaxy a little too you know clean color and a little bit too <laughs> happy, but you get the general feel. It's dark, gritty. Judge Dredd. I mean, we're talking Judge Dredd kind of gritty. Um, okay. You know, people die. Corporations run everything. They don't care about you. You're you're just the latest number added to the roster out of millions, and they're happy mm-hmm. to have you know like Zorg. They're happy to fire a half a million even if they only need to, uh, only need to fire fifty thousand. So you got to remember that if you're not looking out for yourself, no one else will.
0: Mm-hmm. There's a layer of dirt and grime over the the universe of Battle Lords.
2: Yep. The uh, artwork spec has three Gs, grit, grime, and graffiti. Everyone personalizes <laughs> their own stuff with spray paint and whatever else. And, uh, yeah, things are, are not clean. Um, aliens, you know, have all the, all the equipment they have. It very quickly yeah. becomes dirty and, you know, used, uh, lived in. Same kind of a thought.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And given the flexibility of the system, I like to bring people to that because it helps frame what is the, what is the framing for the gameplay they're going to choose. Because if you're going down a um, framing of, say, um, Starship Troopers, then you're probably soldiers, you're probably given your equipment and your training, mm-hmm. and you're going to work in one kind of a context. Yeah. If it's more, say, Fifth Element, it's a bit different. You may have a group of people who don't have the same skills and equipment. Um, If you're out on the fringe just trying to survive, different set of guidelines there. If you're kind of going more piratey, you know, again, if you're going to go more into espionage. So picking that framing helps because the gameplay in the system is so flexible. It's helpful to ground in what kind of gameplay you're looking for.
0: Yeah, I think Battle Lords of the 23rd century, It's one of its major strengths is that flexibility for options, because there are a lot of sci-fi games out there, there's a lot of fantasy games out there, there's a lot of sci-fantasy games out there. But you're always kind of in those roles, or you have a certain expectation for where you can go. Battle Lords seems really open-end, and something that this game offers is the well right now there's the classic version this is seventh edition correct 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 and then there's going to be the other version of battle lords which is based on the savage world system do you want to talk a little bit about designing basically two different games the same game in two different systems
1: yeah the um when we got uh to sort of the keys of the kingdom with the brand and we wanted to develop a new edition, our focus was really streamlining and clarifying the the sixth edition rule set to make seventh edition. We wanted to keep what made Battle Wars Battle Wars. And it is a simulationist system. It's a bit crunchy for some people. Mm-hmm. And but the people who like that, you know, the synergy of being able to dig in and find cool combinations, they love that but there's a whole set of gamers who are not into that. So Mm -hmm. we decided um, relatively early on that we also wanted to port it over to something that was um, a little less crunchy and Savage Worlds was a great fit for that. We looked at a bunch of different systems and decided on that one. And we uh, have been developing it ever since and we're about ready to kickstart.
0: And this won't be obviously your first Kickstarter. You just, recently successfully kickstarted fully armored what exactly was fully armored and what did you learn from that that's going to be being brought into the savage worlds kickstarter
1: dave you want to take the first half of that question
0: (laughs) sure one question 53
2: parts um so one of the things about the universe um it's not like d where you have standard classes and you have sort of a standard level progression of you get these skills or you get these powers or whatever. Um, it's very much skill based. And so the progression is a lot more granular. And a lot of progression really comes in equipment and funding is a, is a bigger portion of progression. Um, and, and frequently you find a lot of fun can be had in having people that are over equipped and over skilled. Um, you have all these really cool toys and you really don't know how to use them very well, which can be hilarious. Um, <laughs> so it, by, uh, bringing together more equipment options, which is the antenna fully armored, um, you yeah. get a better range of things. The core rules is a svelte 5.5 pounds, roughly two and a half kilos, if I remember correctly. Um, oh my gosh. <laughs> we, we had to cut. Yeah. Yes. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's a lot. Doubles
2: as a self-defense <laughs> weapon. If you're at home, uh, Somebody came in the house. I just hit him once. I'm going to, have to take him in. Uh, <laughs> um, we threw the book at him. He died. Um, <laughs> so uh, we, we had no room, believe it or not, for all the toys. Um, and uh, in previous editions, they had uh, a lot of toys in, in a separate book. This is similar mm-hmm. to things they've done in the past. Um, and so there's an expansion on armor, an expansion on guns, and an expansion on all the other stuff you need to do all the various things you could do. And uh, with the original core rules, we tried to give everyone a flavor of low-powered gaming where you've got on the pointy stick, you know, 22-caliber pistol kind of side of things, or maybe a laser yeah. pistol, here really cool, all the way up to you've got mechanized battle armor, and you're basically walking around in quasi-mecha with rockets and massive guns and tank, tank, uh, tank guns. I mean, you've got really big gear. Um, so we tried to give a bit of a flavor of each, but you don't have the room for as much variability and, uh, fully armored really bakes in for each of the core, um, types of weapon systems, a lot of breadth and depth. So you've got a lot of different options and that's kind of handy because there's a certain amount of the gameplay for people who really like to get into it. That kind of goes back to things that you see in games like Magic the Gathering, where, Mm one system may be fine in certain situations, another system may be fine in other situations, but you put them together and all of a sudden you get kind of you unlock another ability between the two of them where it really works well together. The first person hits this yeah. person's armor, the armor's value goes down, and then the next person hits them with a laser, which normally wouldn't be a big deal. That guy wasn't worried about that laser until all of a sudden he realize his armor's gone. And now he's starting to die for cover, but it's too late.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so it's really about synergizing your your equipment then. Yes, there's a lot of
2: synergization of equipment that goes on in this. You this really encourages people to look and dig into the rules and how things work. You don't have to, but if you like that, there's a whole there's a whole hook for people that like to figure out ways to optimize.
1: That's so cool. And then in in terms of porting the weapons over to Savage Worlds. Um, because Savage Worlds is a simpler system, it loses a lot of that granularity. And um mm-hmm. it was a bit of a challenge in figuring out when you're when you're losing the number of stats or values that define what a weapon can do, how you can differentiate uh certain weapons that in, in battle lords are relatively close, but in Savage Worlds the stats would essentially be the same gun. Uh so they uh, uh that was a bit tricky, but uh, I think we managed it with Savage Worlds.
0: Yeah, so I think a lot of people do know a little bit about Savage Worlds and know that it's quite often a game that people use to port or hack other games to make them a simplified version. But there's still that level of, compared to other really hackable systems, it's still like a a little bit easier to get that gritty tone in there. So I'm guessing that kind of helped play into why Savage Worlds was the choice for porting. Yeah, they have
1: the, uh, I, I kind of joke, they have the optional gritty rules in Savage Worlds. And uh, the default <laughs> setting in Battle Lords, as I tell people in in, the, in this, quote, Savage Battle Lords book, it's like, yeah, just turn that on. Because uh, <laughs> it's a gritty <laughs> setting. And one of the things Battle Lords is known for is our critical hit chart, which is, this I do know is about. military sci-fi. It's Those are all sort of battlefield injuries that, well, you know. Larry came up with and had experience with. So, uh, and again, those were ported over to Savage Worlds, and they can be uh, a a little graphic and certainly debilitating for your characters. But in Battle Lords, as long as you don't lose your head, as long as the brain's intact, they can always grow you a new body. So, everybody, you know, don't lose your head, and uh, you'll be okay. Dark, as you might have gotten from Dave's earlier comments, dark humor is one of the elements of Battle Lords as well. There's quite a bit of dark humor.
0: Actually, that's one of the things I wanted to talk about was one of the, the things explicitly written in the Battle Lords Quickstart, at least in both versions is its themes, one of them being dark humor. And there are five core themes that you all written into these things. So do you want to talk a little bit about the themes and really what those add to Battle Lords?
1: Sure. As soon as I find the unmute button. There we go. Um. <laughs> Uh, yeah, the, uh, the, the first one you mentioned was the dark humor. Um, and uh, uh, as we mentioned, it's in there for two reasons. One, if the game is too gritty, um, then it becomes not fun. Uh, and the other reason it is in there is because it's military sci-fi. And in real life, soldiers use dark humor to cope with a lot of the stressful and horrible things they have to experience. So it's an, also a thematic element of the game. Um, one of them, one of the themes, is in the trenches. A lot of times, these characters are considered expendable by their mega corporate employers, and they're using weaponry built by the lowest bidder, and they're just making do. Uh, so, that, uh, as, as Dave mentioned earlier, it's kind of gritty, and uh, uh, and sometimes you just have to do what you can. Uh, the second theme, I guess, third theme would be uh, overcoming speciesism and stereotypes. We've got 14 species, we don't call them races, we're not Dungeons & Dragons, we've got 14 species yep. in the game that you can play, and they don't all get along. Um, some of them have been at war with each other in the past, and now they are forced to essentially play nice, because they're facing a bigger threat, the looming invasion of the, uh, the Arachnids and their techno-organic hordes, but a lot of them still hold grudges, uh, mm-hmm. and a lot of them sort of stereotype each other. You know, all the ram pythons are big and dumb. All the fintari are untrustworthy. Well, that one is probably true, but, uh, (laughs) so they have to learn to work around these stereotypes because at the end of the day, if they're going to hold a grudge, not function as a team, they're all going to die horribly. So Mm -hmm. part of it is overcoming, uh, those, that speciesism, uh, or racism in this against the other species and, and making it work, uh the uh, you know the last two themes are sort of uh um making it big you know everybody wants to become a quote battle lord you know that's how you know you've made it to the big time mm-hmm. you know and there and as uh, the two elements Dave mentioned earlier are sort of the the runaway capitalism like in fifth element mega corporations own and run everything in the Battle Lord's universe and making it big is overcoming the sort of the haves and the have-nots. You know, the Megacorp CEOs uh, and and high-level managers can buy and sell planets, and you're a grunt in the trenches trying to get your laser to work <laughs> when the Arachnids are coming. Um, so th- those are sort of the five major elements of the game, and then they've already covered the three um, sort of artistic visual elements of the game. When we had the artists do the art, we wanted them to yeah. to cover those visual elements of of grime, graffiti, and and uh, and tons of gear. Fest- a lot of the characters you'll see are sort of festooned with gear.
0: Yeah, actually, you just mentioned that art there, and I wanted to to talk about that. This art is incredible. There's so much expression, and you can really catch that tone from just like looking at these pieces, what went into finding the artists for these? Um
1: bourbon. I, I'd, say bourbon. Hmm?
2: Bourbon, I'd say bourbon. Bourbon, <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. Uh I, I get that question a lot. When we um uh when we first approached our fulfillment house about carrying battle wars, that was one of the first questions out of the out of their mouths were like, where did you find these artists? And um Sadly, there's a website that is no longer around, but there's a website called conceptart.org where oh, you could post um, basically jobs. Like I need somebody to draw spaceships or guns and yeah. they would you would get blasted with resumes for all these people who wanted to do that. And you could just flip through them. Oh, I like that guy's guns. I'll hire him uh yeah. and um sadly that's not around anymore but the other thing I did was I would get on Instagram and ArtStation and uh DeviantArt is the other one and just look for I do keyword searches and I would find artists I like and I would contact them and only about a quarter of the time did it work out but when it did work out we've got some amazing artists that otherwise would probably have been undiscovered uh Kiki Kurnia, who does all of our cover art it was pretty much an unknown before then and she's fantastic uh and Mira Waija who um does some pieces in the book, now works for marvel and d c so oh, he, wow. he they, you know it wasn't long after we found him that people were like, "Wow, this guy's really good so we're we're definitely proud of the art and uh, yeah we think it, it looks looks great
2: and we've gotten lucky we've been able to also pull in some people we normally wouldn't I thought we'd get uh get to showcase um so Barlow Barlow's um, if you know who Barlow is uh mm-hmm. he he decided to do a piece of art for us we appreciate that yeah. so Wayne Barlow
0: yeah there's just some incredible pieces in here especially all the all the species they're different just like they have so much personality to them you can kind of get them I was talking to Tony before we started and I love the scissorac. Which you said actually from changing editions, there was some some backlash about originally. Yeah, we
1: were gonna make them more alien looking. Part of part of moving from sixth edition to seventh edition was to pull out anything that was what I like to call fantasy inspired. We wanted it to, to be sort of a true science fiction game, not space mm-hmm. elves and space dwarves. Um and so the scissoracs, which look like giant cats, we were going to redesign them to make them more alien. Mm-hmm. And when we posted our sort of prototype art, they were uniformly loathed by all <laughs> our fan base. are <laughs> like, fine, we'll leave them giant cats and chalk it up to convergent evolution.
0: <laughs> it's just so interesting.
2: And I just wanted to kind of focus in on the comment for a real quick uh, second. It's just that there is actually an awful lot of science behind all this stuff. We really do mm-hmm. start from the science things. And then scale it back towards fun. So sometimes we do things that's just like, yeah, we're going to wave a hand on this particular situation. But uh, we start off with what makes sense and then what's playable and fun.
1: Yeah, Dave, Dave can probably tell you the jewels of energy generated by most weapons. Kurt can tell you the biochemistry behind the uh, respiration physiology of most of the species. Um, there, yeah, There is a lot of uh, math and science on the back end that the the players will never see.
2: I did all the modeling <laughs> to figure out the airspeed velocity of the various starships in atmosphere, to figure out what their um limit is in atmosphere. Their engines just only get them so fast in atmosphere, and that's how long it's take gonna drive that drives how long it takes to get to orbit. Because you gotta get through the atmosphere to get to orbit. Once you get out there, then the engines are like, oh, there's nothing to stop me now. Whoosh, they go fast.
1: Fortunately and, uh, for yeah, the players, the only thing they're going to see is this is how long it takes you to get into orbit. So they don't have to do any of that math. Exactly. Six hours. Yeah.
0: 15 minutes. Yep. But that also just, that's some in-game universe building that just like, it's it's one of those gritty things that players don't really see on the front end. Like all of that back-end work that people put into it. Like a lot of sci-fi games think about that too. Like to an extent at least. But I just think that's one of those details that gets missed when people are are looking at the games that are made yeah we
1: have some fans that i think we've sort of wowed on our discord who have asked questions like can i do this with the armor and i was like well let me get out the spreadsheet and i'm like okay that'll be <laughs> half a kilo and they're like how did you know that and i was like well i calculate how much each piece of that armor weighs down to the you know s- cinegram." Like, yeah, really? I was like, yeah, but you know,
0: you don't, you don't have to deal with that on the front end. Oh God, no. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, we've actually talked about creating, um, so again, older than dirt here. Uh, dirt was pretty cool though. When it came along, it made it a lot of <laughs> food. Um, anyway, um, So, uh, way back in the day, GGW, Makers of Travelers, had created what they called design sequences of various things, and they included Mm -hmm. some of their main books, like High Guard was uh, book five, and that gave you a more complicated system for generating ships. Well, you also look at the striker rules, and they had really complicated rule sets for doing all kinds of weapons and armor and Mm -hmm. tanks and all kinds of things. Um, So, one of the things we keep kicking around is, you know, when we when we're not we know, somewhere further down the line after we get to the current five or six projects we've already got queued up um do we start looking at releasing some of these design sequences so people want to tinker so they can you know have things they can tinker with
0: yeah i think that makes a lot of sense too because there's this game is so rooted in science and the math and the numbers and stuff it it looks great and it from what i can tell it plays great i know that the the campaign that's been running at the game store has been going for a bit. So, like, something's going right with this game.
2: Yeah, we always recommend to people when they're starting, because it is such a crunchy system in modern-day gaming, uh, a lot of people are used to lighter-weight games, and this is very Mm -hmm. much a product of 30 years ago where games were much more involved and started kind of more from a tabletop miniatures kind of a perspective. Mm -hmm. To start with quick start rules, just start with real simple... Uh, it's a percentile-based system. Roll under it. You're good. Um, you know, Make up a reasonable, rational thought process around what kind of a penalty or bonus applies and go with it. And then don't, mm-hmm. don't spend too much time on it. Um, and then as people have uh, an interest to add in additional rules, add in more fun. So um, we usually start with a crit chart. That's kind of one of the first things we'll throw in there. because It's just kind
1: of fun. Oop, you blew the head off.
2: They're dead. <laughs> that kind of stuff.
1: Back the Savage Worlds edition when we kickstart that. Because that will I that the whole point of us doing that was to have a, a lighter weight rules mechanic for players who wanted to play in the Battle Lords universe but didn't necessarily uh enjoy uh sort of the, the, the crunchier games, and then they could play it with the Savage Worlds rules.
0: hmm Yeah, that I think that makes a lot of sense too. We've been throwing a word around a lot. I actually think we've missed touching about it though. What's a Battle Lord? Uh, it, it's funny <laughs> you should have, the game's
1: been called obviously battle lords of the 23rd Century since Larry <laughs> invented it in like nineteen eighty-eight. Um, but it wasn't until 7th edition that we really defined what a battle lord was. All that we've been playing wow. the game for years, and we're like, <laughs> you know, they never really tell you what a battle lord is. It's just sort of like a super cool mercenary. But um mm-hmm. so we that was one of the things we fixed in seventh edition was we defined it essentially what a battle lord is is it's kind of like a a super sheriff with the the alliance being so vast the alliance navy cannot be everywhere at once so yeah. what they do is they find these uh either soldiers or marines or mercenaries who are exceptional combatants particularly when they are outnumbered uh and what they do is they uh, name them battle lords and it is a rank that is outside the normal chain of command and they give them a, uh, a crew of battle knights who assist them and they get their own personal war cruiser and they're assigned a territory to patrol and mm. if any trouble shows up in that territory it's the battle lords job to deal with it until the navy gets there because the uh, the alliance is so vast, the Navy can't be everywhere all at once, and the Arachnid invasions are a bit random and haphazard because of the way their faster-than-light travel works, so they can sort of end up every- anywhere, uh, and which could be a bit of a surprise. So these battle lords patrol the territory, and their job is to basically enforce the law and keep people safe there. But they are also a bit of celebrity. If you read some of the books, we have some battle lords who really are happier hobnobbing in bars and having... You know, gifts lavished on them, then patrolling their territory, and the, some of the other <laughs> Battle Lords give them a hard time about that.
0: These are your sort of sci fi heroes. Like, uh, for instance, like some people who might fall under this if they were in the Battle Lords universe would be like Master Chief from Halo or Commander Shepard from Mass Effect.
1: Yeah, sort of the same concept. Yeah. Yep.
2: Okay. Yeah, you could also argue uh, Frank Castle in a more greedy form
0: um, as yeah. the Punisher.
2: Because, mm. again, we're gritty.
0: Yeah, gr- gritty. Definitely gritty. <laughs> so, <laughs> Just saying. You, you, well, doesn't get much more gritty than The Punisher, right? So, Yep. Oh, you're guilty. Boom, thud. Next. <laughs> uh, I
2: think we've got room on the docket for three more. Oh, uh, how about dead, dead, and dead? Boom, boom, boom. Okay, there we go. I'm done for the day. <laughs>
0: So we've talked a little bit about some of the background information about what's going on in the Battle Lords universe, and you've brought up the Arachnid a couple times. What are they? Are they an old enemy coming back into this edition, or what are the Arachnid and how recent are they in the storyline of Battle Lords?
1: I think the Arachnids have been around since first edition. Um, Okay. A lot of combat in Battle Lords is mercenary versus mercenary uh, because mm-hmm. the megacorps own and run and control everything, and really the, the alliance government is just sort of puppeted from behind the veil by the megacorps. Yeah, um, they run away they do and... run afoul of each other, and occasionally it's this megacorps mercenaries versus this megacorps mercenaries. Mm-hmm. Um, but you also run into the arachnids, and the arachnids... Um, the the name is Aknarin, is what they uh, the Eridani call them, which translates okay. to mismatched horde. And when the hmm. humans heard Aknarin and saw uh, what the creature, some of the creatures looked like, they're like, they're kind of spider-like. Let's just call them arachnids. But the arachnids have been around for a very long time. No one officially knows what they're pissed off about and why they're invading. But if you dig into some of the uh, meta plot and behind the scenes lore, we we sort of drop secrets on why the Arachnids are so pissed off. And they have m- entire armies of techno-organic, genetically engineered minions that they use as troops. Mm. Uh, and it is a, a sort of starship trooper where they have specific minions to do specific jobs. Some function yeah. as armored personnel carriers, some function as infantry, some function as shock troops. And that's uh, that's who we refer to, the Arachnids, arachnids collectively, as that uh, that horde of these cybernetic monstrosities that you may run into. You don't want to run into but you may run into them. No.
2: Well, and even their ships, some of their ships are techno-organic. So.
0: I've always been a sucker for that. Techno-organic ships are so cool and terrifying. I just love the concept of them.
1: Yeah, it's hard to kill something that regenerates... <laughs>
0: Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Another thing that I think is really important, too, when it comes to making these sci-fi games, especially tabletop role-playing games, are your choices as a player. We've already talked a little bit about equipment, but what I think is really a strong point is the uniqueness of each of the species. So you have your species and your equipment. Are there any other character options that people get to choose from?
2: skills. Lots and lots of skills. So each of the species has really got an archetype so it, 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 when people read the species description there's kind of an obvious leaning towards particular type of gameplay for that particular species and that's somewhat okay. intentional because it grounds people in uh, given how granular things are in, uh, are in the system it's mm-hmm. really easy to kind of get lost in all that because you can do a lot of different things and go a lot of different directions. Yeah. Um, but that's why I recommend um we we tell people, start off with kind of picking your genre. That kind of mm-hmm. frames what makes sense, right? If you're going to go into an espionage role, building out a Frank Castle, probably not a good choice. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um if you're going to go into um a um Starship Troopers kind of a thing where you're fighting the arachnids then you're probably not going to want to pick your um, Q, you know, building a Q character that's really good at making gadgets. I'm like, yeah, it's not really a good fit, right? So just by setting that genre, that starts things. Um, and by setting that genre, it also kind of tells you the skills you're going to want, right? If you're in a espionage kind of a world, you're probably going to be thinking in terms of things that help you sneak in or steal or hack computers or hack through security systems or, you know, it kind of, you, the idea start to flow, right? It gives you a good brainstorming. Of, These are the things that I'm probably yeah. going to find useful. If you're in a Starship Troopers kind of a mindset, then you're going to be like, well, I don't really care about whether or not I can intimidate people because I'm probably going to be shooting them. So I probably need guns. I probably need medical. <laughs> I probably need demolitions. I'm out of skill points. Darn it. Um, and, Once you get going, the nice thing about being skill-based and and equipment-based is that, you know, you may find, okay, we started off with a big battle about fighting off the Arachnids because they attacked this um, planet that was owned by our Megacorp, and now we're shifting gears and now we're fighting another Megacorp to see if we can steal their top scientist. Well, now you've got a little bit different kind of gameplay, so you can start to shift your skill sets as you grow your character in a different direction, if you want. So lots of options there. your skills and equipment, your equipment too. You can start to spend your money in a different direction and take you down know, a different path.
1: Yeah. Classic Battle Wars is not class based. It's not there are there like they said there are there are implied archetypes, but you're not set in stone. That's one of the things people like about the game, is because it's skill based, you can make whatever you want, you know, from you know bounty hunters to rock star, whatever you want to be, and you you're not locked in if you wanna change it later. Like he was saying, if if it makes sense to have your pilot suddenly become a gunslinger, you can do that. Um, and that's one of the things that we've carried over uh, into the Savage Worlds version. We've got archetypes, and, and even in Classic Battle Wars, we've got the, the four main groups that we sort of flesh out. Mercenaries, soldiers, spies, and pirates. And so you've got those four areas that we sort of focus on. But you can do anything in the universe that's expansive. We've had people tell us you know, they play musicians and they just travel the universe getting into trouble or <laughs> bounty hunters or, you know, what have you. I had
2: one group that I ran that um, as I was trying to test out Starship rules, we ended up with the group taking over a big ship and turning it into a cruise liner and running a cruise liner, which got interesting but after a while, like, I don't know where we're taking this anymore, so we just kind of retired that campaign.
0: That's totally fair. Something that I like about skill-based systems and I I've played a another campaign for another game with a skill-based system like that, that you can slowly grow up is that it also lends itself to the narrative. It's like, all right, you're moving away from being, I I don't know. My character is like a, a negotiator in my other game. So like if I was like a talking character in battle Lords, and then I started kind of making like this character where he's now becoming more of a pilot, I can do that, but it takes some time.
2: Yeah. So you can definitely make that progression change. Um, It encourages people to think about where the game is going and Mm -hmm. start investing in the direction they want to be. But uh, yeah, you can change on the fly to help some things back in terms of skill points. A lot of ways to play that. Mm -hmm.
0: It's also nice that the gritty world can kind of be offset with, well, like you guys said, so long as you don't lose your head, you can get body parts back, for instance. I like that offset.
2: Yeah, we used to say, it's not a question of if you die... Or when you die, it's how often and if you can afford to come back.
0: <laughs>
2: and the company's quite happy to tackle Oh, yeah, they'll give the you years a to your contract. You, but we'll,
1: Yeah, we'll just offset that by adding a year <laughs> to your contract to cover our costs.
0: <laughs> so, Dave, Tony, is there a specific demographic that you think would really like this game? I think
1: anybody I mean we really well, that was one of the things that we did with seventh edition is we really tried to expand the audience of the game um I mean it has a huge following among military veterans uh and it the classic battle Lords rewards people who, as Dave said, like to dig into the the system to find those synergies where oh i I get this and this they work really well together, but um. You know, really, particularly with having two versions now, the Savage Worlds version and the classic version, you know, I, you, if you want to run a story based game, you can do it. If you want to run a combat based game, you can do it. We uh, tell people the Battle Lords universe is expansive, and I would mm-hmm. encourage anybody to, you know, down, if you're not sure, download the quick start rules and give it a try. Uh, and, and as you've noticed, at the very least, you'll get to see some really cool artwork.
0: Phenomenal. So we're actually starting to run a little bit low on time here, but I got two questions that are left that I like to ask everybody who comes onto the show and you can both answer this one, but what advice can you give to people who are looking to make their own game, but they're not really sure where to start. They don't know where to begin. What, what advice can you give to those folks who are wanting to create something?
1: I think the advice I would give people is reach out to other creators um, now keep in mind, and, and this is sort of a sad state on on the, on the industry, the vast majority of them are going to blow you off. But there will be a few that help you. And Battle Wars, at least the 7th edition, would not be here today if there weren't a few creators out there who were ahead of us that took their time to uh talk with us and sort of sh- show us the ropes and explain how things went. And we owe them a lot. And one of the things I've been doing is paying that forward to new creators I run into, and I try and help them out where, where I can. But you have to understand that most people in the industry are not going to do that, particularly the big guys. One, they're busy. And two, they really only talk to the other, other people who they've known from the, in the industry for decades. Yeah. Um, there are some exceptions, obviously, but I, I would encourage everybody to, to join the IGDN, the Indian Independent Indie Game Developer Network. Uh, and talk to Pete uh there PDP uh his last name is Trusha. I probably mispronounced that apologies uh, <laughs> they are a great organization of independent game designers and they will uh it, we, they will help you uh they certainly helped us
2: there are also conferences at GenCon um there are seminars on how to kickstart things they had uh the guys from Exploding Kittens talk about what they did to to market <laughs> um so uh, crowdfunding has really changed the industry, right? It yeah. used to be you had to source everything. That's one of the reasons why art's gotten so much better, in my opinion, is because in the past it was like, well, how much can we pull up, across all of us, and throw at this and see if it's enough, and, oh, we're going to have to take a cut somewhere. Well, I guess art's going to take the cut. Um, mm-hmm. Now you can pitch your idea and go into kickstarting mode, and, uh, you know, if people fund it, yeah. You know, Go, um, kind of the field of dreams. If you build it, mm-hmm. they will come. Um, so if you're if you really can put together your marketing strategy, um, really clearly articulate your concept, it's best if you're pretty far down the path with things. In our experience, because it's it's not so conceptual, right? With all crowdfunding, there's always that risk that the product doesn't really get out the door. Um, yeah. The farther you are down the path, the easier it is to show people that they're going to get something tangible at the
1: end. Mm-hmm. So. The last comment I would make, and yeah, I would definitely second Dave's. Make sure you have something resembling a finished product, if at all possible. But the last comment I would make is, I made I made a joke on the last podcast we were on, and it sort of fell flat. <laughs> I was like, I was it was it was meant to be humorous. I they I don't know if they've got it, but I said the, the key to making a game is to be filled with uh, blinding overconfidence. And, and oh what gosh, I mean yes. by that is you're going to have people <laughs> who tell you you're wrong. You're not going to be able to do that. You know, that's a horrible idea. Just ignore them all and do it. Um, yeah. You know, just just do it. You know, kickstart that sucker and, you know, you, know, you might make it big. But either way, you, 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 you put it out there for people to see. And someone will love it.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep.
2: There was a really cool video of Stan Lee talking about the creation of Spider-Man. If he had listened to his editor, there would be no Spider-Man.
0: I did know that. Fun fact about that just doing it thing. The very first episode of scheduled for launch was with a musician friend of mine. And his advice at the end was strike while the iron's hot and shut up and just do it. And we've heard variations on that the entire time. And I'm so glad that more and more creators are just kind of going with that because... I mean, this this podcast, this entire thing exists for the past, over a year now, exists because that same person told me to just go and commit to making it. So, like, to, to hear more people saying that is just really exciting to me. Well, we're glad you followed his advice. And, <laughs> uh, I, and
1: certainly for, um, uh, you know, in, for game design. It's it's the barriers for entry are much lower now than they were 20 years ago with dip, with yeah. print on demand, digital printing, and crowdfunding. It is it's so much easier to get it out there. So really, yeah. I tell you, the only thing holding you back is you.
2: I'll just kind of be the downer here to say, and it comes with work, right? Opportunities oh, yeah. don't just you know happen. But there's a lot of work behind all these things. So mm-hmm. do jump at it. Do commit to doing it. Give yourself the grace to go, you know what? I need to take a break because I haven't had a vacation in two years. And that's okay, too. But uh, if you want to do it, just keep at it. Just keep doing it. You'll get there. He just says that because he's the editor. (laughs) 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 Yes, and I've got three more books to edit for Savage Worlds.
0: Oh, my. (laughs) Tony, Dave, where can people find out more about you and Battle Lords of the 23rd Century?
1: We're on most social media. Um, we're on Twitter, Facebook. We've got a Discord. We're on Instagram. Uh, I'm probably missing some social media. We've got a Facebook discussion group. Um, so we're... well, uh, uh, And our website is battlewords.com, or you can also get to it from the company name, 23rdCentury.net. And uh, our products are available on Amazon. They're available through Studio 2 Publications. They're available through Indie Press Revolution. They should be at most of the conventions you go to, either at the uh, Studio Two or Indie Press Revolution website. Um, And you can always ask your local brick-and-mortar store to order them. We're also available through distribution. I'll
2: just chime in with, and uh, one of the cool things about this, talking a little bit to kind of tie the last topic to this topic, because of how easy it is to enter into doing all this stuff and how easy it is to generate through social media interaction. It used to be when you had a question, it was really hard to get an answer. Now, we run a Discord, and people ask us questions all the time. We're like, here's how this works. And uh, there's people who've been playing this game for a long time. that are like, yeah, I'm pretty sure I know how this one works, and they can answer the question. So we have a growing community on Discord, um, and this is you know, one of those ways where everyone can kind of just jump in with their ideas. Um, we also encourage people to house rule things. If they want to do things a little differently, go for it
0: have fun and at the end of the day that's really what it's about is having a good time in a system you enjoy well yes, number one is.
1: have fun if you're not having fun why are you doing it
0: exactly. exactly as always audience all the links for the socials and all that stuff that's going to be down in the description below Tony, Dave thank you so much for coming on to the show and talking about Battlelords of the 23rd Century with me this game's rad I love it it's so cool
1: well, we're, we're glad good. you like it, and thanks for having us.
0: <laughs> and audience, thank you so much for listening. Tony and David and the rest of the Battle Lord's crew, they are working super hard, and the Savage Worlds version is scheduled to launch on Kickstarter very soon and possibly actually might already be up by the time that this episode goes live. If not, it'll be in the near future, and we will let you know then. Go out there, support them. Pick up Battlelords. I'm sure you'll have a great time if this is your cup of tea and it's definitely one that I'm going to look into. Take care of yourselves. Have a good night. We'll see you on the next one. Bye. Thank you so much to Tony and Dave for joining me this week to talk about Battlelords of the 23rd Century. I've had a little time to dabble in the character creator and I've read over some of the quick start rules. It certainly looks like one of those games that I would love to have some friends play with me, it's really exciting. I'm excited to share it. Honestly, go check out the quick start rules for both versions of the core game and the Savage World versions, and go with which one you think will work better for your table. There's a lot of choices here, so if you really like building characters and flushing out your world, this one's for you. And once again, thank you for joining me, listeners. We keep on finding more and more amazing creators, and it's been a lot of fun seeing everything that they come up with. And The best part is we keep on seeing the crew grow and more and more people joining us. So if there's a specific creator out there that you'd like to hear more about their project, let me know. I'll even reach out to them myself. Next week, I'm very excited to be welcoming back Moss Powers to talk about his game, Infinite Reverie, which is a JRPG-inspired TTRPG with a lot of nuance and heart. Until then, though, take care of yourselves, and I'll see you on the next one.